you are listening to the third episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, where Daredevil finally wears the red costume and goes up against the gladiator with the art of jazzy John Ramita. Welcome back to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the show all about Marvel's man without fear, Hornhead himself, Daredevil. I am J. David Weeder. I run this little program. So here, you can call me Dave. It's in the title. I feel a tingle of excitement this week, guys. Uh, I feel like the rubber is meeting the road with this show. Finally, here in the third episode, I get to open up our first red-costumed Daredevil issue. Can I get some applause out there? Okay, you listening to The Office, that was probably pretty awkward. Daredevil in the red costume feels like a proper Daredevil to me. And John Romita is going to be the artist we're going to be looking at. So a John Romita drawn comic, always, always a treat. Loves me some John Romita. Now to kind of pick up where we left off with the yellow period, the first two episodes, set up the book accurately, we left off at Daredevil number six. Now looking at the evolution of the comic itself, the red costume made its debut in issue number seven of the book, which I actually have hanging on my wall. I did get a good price on a copy of Daredevil number seven, and I absolutely had to have it. Um, very beautiful, beautiful Wally Wood cover. Now, Wally Wood did introduce the red costume, as well as the double D symbol, so he is a very unsung hero in the design of Daredevil. Kind of like Jack Kirby, where Kirby did the initial design, and then Bill Everett kind of ran with it from there. You know, Wood is kind of right there along that line. Now, I wouldn't give him a co-creator credit, but I would give him some props. Now, the villain of this week's episode is Stiltman. And Stiltman came into play with issue number eight, which was also by Wood. And also, let me mention that Dr. Karen was so persistent on Matt seeing to fix his eyes, he was a crazed killer. Crazed killer who lived in a castle. Thanks for everything that you do, Karen Page. Your whining, your shallowness, you almost getting Matt killed. You're a wonderful, warm human being. Uh, Wally Wood actually would stay on the book through issue 10, where he also wrote that issue and introduced the Unholy Three, which is a trio of animal-themed villains. This included Frogman, who was in a frog suit, Catman in a cat suit, and I'm not making this up. And the weird thing is, I have a weird affection for these three. You have to take some of these early Daredevil stories in, in a certain context. They're fun, they're goofy, but, you know, they are still fun. They're still fun comics to read, even though they're not the dark and gritty stuff we're used to. Now, artist Bob Powell filled in on issue number 10, which is where we have John Romita entering the picture. He came on with issue 12, and that's where Romita took over the art duties in time to illustrate a two-issue story featuring Kazar, you know, the jungle man. And the story, I kid you not, had Kazar and Daredevil being hunted and hunted by pirates. They're out at sea, they're in castles, freaking pirates. One thing I will say about Daredevil, kind of my fair-weather fan element, is when we take Daredevil out of the element of a of an urban landscape. For example, I don't want to see Daredevil in the jungle very much, if at all. Um, small towns, there's a story we're going to be covering later where he does visit a small town that was kind of cool, because it kind of had a horror element, kind of a Sleepy Hollow thing. And that is a very fringe issue for me. I liked it, despite my normal aesthetic. But John Romita uh, was a well-known artist uh, for romance books at this time. He was doing a lot of romance books over at D.C., 
And at this stage, where he's entering into the Marvel bullpen, he had gotten a job at an ad agency that paid better, it had less hours, kind of a win-win for him, and he hadn't, you know, sworn off comics. He's not saying, never again. Uh, but he, his decision was that due to his workload, his family, if he was going to take on comic work, he would do so as an inker, and not as a penciler. However, the ever-ambitious Stan Lee courted John Romita and took him out to a long three-hour lunch. Lee offered to match the salary at the ad agency and give Ramita the flexibility to work at home. And during this lunch, Stan showed John Ramita a Daredevil page that was in progress. Uh, it was done by artist Dick Ayers, by all reports. And Stan asked John to draw the page and just draw the character in the page the way John Ramita would interpret it. And Stan was really impressed. So Ramita did come aboard for a short run that began with issue 12, and he stayed through issue 19. In here, in his run, is issues 16 and 17, where Daredevil and Spider-Man teamed up again. Now remember last week, how I mentioned that Daredevil's comic and John Ramita would be important to Spider-Man? Here's that payoff. For those that don't know, Steve Ditko left Spider-Man. Now Stan had suspected that the Ditko was going to go, their relationship had become really cold and, and, and well, less of a relationship... <laughs> So when Ditko left, Ramita was being, basically he was in this, on Daredevil and being groomed to take over Spider-Man. And he did so with issue 39. And when he came on, the interesting thing is, he was drawing in Ditko style. You don't really notice that big of a change, but he would slowly begin to draw Spider-Man in his own style. So he made this slow transition to his style. And the thing is, Ramita's interpretation of Spider-Man became the house style. And it remained the standard character guide, essentially until Todd McFarlane added spaghetti webbing, big eyes, and contortionist poses in the late 80s. Now for me, Ramita is my favorite Spider-Man artist from that era, from, from the old bullpen, more than Ditko, and I loves, loves me some Ditko. But Ramita, you know, he brought us Gwen Stacy's headband. He didn't design Gwen Stacy, but he added that headband, which has become a defining characteristic. He gave us our first look at Mary Jane Watson in that final panel. That is now just huge. I mean, think about that, how big that moment is. And he's the one that brought it to us. And boy, does she look smoking. He also brought us a lot of iconic Spider-Man covers and scenes. Really, a lot of the posters you see that are fabricated from the original covers, a lot of those are Ramita. And on my wall, as I mentioned a couple of times, is a lithograph of Spider-Man and Daredevil hanging out on a on a rooftop and it's done by Ramita easily one of my favorite pieces of art that I own it's just a gorgeous piece I mean I can sit here and find myself just gazing upon it so when I started planning out this show what I was going to cover I knew that I had to have at least one John Ramita issue because looking at that I had to talk a little bit about him now as much as I love Ramita and I loves me some John Ramita sorry to do this again <laughs> I love his Daredevil. Love it to death. Gene Colan, always going to be my favorite and most definitive Daredevil artist. And we're going to talk about that next week. There's a teaser. But the thing is, Colan has this very long, remarkable Daredevil run. I mean, we're going to be looking at a lot of his issues. Just inevitably. But we only have a small window of time here to, you know, issues 12 to 19 to look at Ramita's work. So I had to kind of look through there and figure out which issue is going to say what we need to. And when I spied this week's issue... I knew immediately it made the most sense to cover. Not only does R Ramita draw it, which was kind of the requisite for the episode, there's a major villain introduced, and we get some Foggy Nelson time, because we need some attention on Foggy Nelson. So when we return from a short podcast promo break, we're going to be cracking open Daredevil, 
issue number 18 to see the first appearance of the Gladiator, as drawn by Jazzy John Romita. Stay with me, I'll be right back. Hello, podcast listener. Do you like... Ready to form Voltron! Or maybe... How about... I am Batman! Or... This is a job for Superman! Do you remember... Power Rangers! Or this? Right away, Michael. Or maybe even this? Autobots, transform! Or this? By the power of Grayskull! Or... For the honors of Grayskull! Or have you seen the latest episode of... Hello. I'm the Doctor. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then check out Charlie's GeekCast, hosted by me, Charlie Niemeyer. Charlie's GeekCast is a bi-weekly podcast covering comics and other geek stuff. The first episode of each month is devoted to comics, where I look at random comics from my collection. The other episode of the month is devoted to whatever else I want to talk about, such as movies, TV shows, cartoons, video games, and more. Feel free to check it out at www.charliesgeekcast.com. We're back, ready to dive into Daredevil issue 18, the July 1966 issue, which was still written by Stan Lee. The cover features Daredevil grappling with the gladiator on a dock with the fog rising up around the two of them, and it sets the tone, that is for sure. It does bring a tinge of darkness to Daredevil, an aspect that Gene Colan would retain when he took over the comic two issues later. Let's just uh, get it out of the way. Gladiator's costume is a bit of a train wreck. I mean, not a bit, it's a train wreck. He has these whirling circular blades mounted on his wrists, which is cool. That's a great idea for a weapon, because they also act as shields. It's a, it's a twofer. But he has this green chainmail set of pants, and the set of metal belts that crisscross around his waist, and then this yellow sleeveless shirt, green and yellow, and sleeveless. Gladiator looks like the member of Right Said Fred who got dropped into Thunderdome. The helmet he wears is actually nice. I like it a lot. Uh, it's this menacing bucket. It's not very detailed in the design, which is good. Because, but this, what this does is it hides all of his facial features, which is intimidating. Because there's no expression. There's no real definition of a face. Just cold, hard menace. And it's the same principle that makes Jason work well in the Friday the 13th films. Or Michael Myers. It's the ambiguity of who or what is underneath that is frightening and exactly what their emotions are, what their intentions are. You can't read that on their face. The story is entitled, There Shall Come a Gladiator, as it says right on the cover and on the first page. So let's kind of get started on the story. I'm going to kind of give you a breakdown here real quick, and we'll stop and discuss. As we open the first page, we see Franklin Foggy Nelson entering into a costume shop, which is filled with detailed mannequins, wearing the familiar duds of Marvel heroes like Thor, Captain America, and Daredevil. Foggy is marveling at the costumes, no pun intended, when the shop owner comes out of the back room and creeps Foggy out and gives him more than a little crap. 
because it seems that Foggy wants a Daredevil costume in order to impress Karen Page. But the shop owner isn't all that keen on making a Daredevil costume in Foggy's size. But the shop owner relents and takes Foggy's measurements and then sends Foggy on his merry way, saying that Nelson can come back and pick up the costume that night after dark. As soon as Foggy leaves the shop, the shopkeeper rants to himself that he hates costume fools and that anybody could be a hero or a villain with the right powers built into his or her clothes. And to prove that, Foggy will be his guinea pig. Now let me stop there. Let's talk about the issue a bit so far. First of all, this is a Foggy story as much as, or maybe more, than it's a Matt story. Foggy is out to prove to Karen that he is just as viable a romantic interest as Matt. And he's going about it, well, awkwardly and sadly, by trying to be more like Matt, even though Foggy doesn't realize that. What this does for the character of Foggy is put him squarely in the middle of being a sympathetic character that we can all kind of relate to, and a bit annoying and desperate. Because we readers like Foggy, and if we're honest, we get Foggy in ways that we don't necessarily understand Matt. Because most of us have had that girl that is just out of reach, and we think that if we can get just a little bit of their attention, they will magically see the greatness that is within us and judge us based on that. It may not be seeking to convince them that we are a superhero, but let's not rule that out, but but the metaphor holds. You know, we have hidden talents or a compassionate hearts. Sometimes it's just something that isn't there, if we're being completely honest. So I'm not going to throw stones at Foggy for that element, because I don't want to shatter the wall of my own glass house. However, I'm going to throw stones at the fact that Foggy didn't turn right around when he saw the interior of this costume shop. It looks like a set of dark shadows, and the shopkeeper comes out of the back like he's Renfield or something. Can I help you? Uh, It's ridiculous. The shopkeeper's name is Melvin Potter, by the way. We haven't seen that mentioned. He has issues, as we've kind of seen already. Uh, He doesn't like costume heroes. There's more issues than that, people. The thing is, writers pull him out of mothballs again and again, even Bendis. And every time they do, typically, they're able to do something awesome with the character. Now, knowing that, I mean... It tinges what we're looking at here. When you're looking at a pure first impression shooting from the hip, he immediately puts me off. As Foggy says, he has the eyes of a fanatic. Or a mental case. Which is closer to the truth. Ramita's design of Potter sets the tone. By making the reader a bit uncomfortable. Not just because of the crazy eyes. Potter is also very physically imposing. He's a big dude. He has this kind of build and shaved head that looks like you'd expect uh, you expect him to be hanging out in the biker bar when, when the T-800 comes in. And the thing is, he's dressed in this sharp purple suit with this vest and carries himself with this stone-cold demeanor. And I don't mean stone-cold Steve Austin. Just cold. And he's like that right up until Foggy is out of sight. Then we see this rage that's probably always bubbling right under Melvin's surface. He is a time bomb. And he's looking for a place to explode. Now, we're told this in the dialogue, but we're also shown this in the art. And maybe a time bomb isn't necessarily the right, uh, the right metaphor, or right simile. He's more like a precision-guided missile, and he's just aching to be launched. And when he does, it looks like Foggy will be the target, which is a good place to rejoin our story. We find Matt Murdock sitting around his apartment fretting about Foggy who has been dropping these hints left and right to Karen that he is Daredevil. And Matt, you would expect Matt to be jealous, and I'm not saying that's not there, but Matt feels that this could put Foggy in danger if he isn't careful. But the thing is, Matt can't say anything to Foggy without revealing that he is Daredevil. So to clear his mind, Matt slips into his hidden gym 
and exercises a bit before taking off to the law offices of Nelson and Murdoch, where Foggy is laying the hints on thick. Later, as Foggy heads back to the costume shop, he comes upon Potter, working on something in the back room, and Melvin hides the work and hastily gives Foggy his costume, but as an added service, Melvin helps Foggy set up a scenario where there will be a fake attack, which will allow Foggy to play the hero and win Karen's heart. Luckily, Matt is in his real Daredevil costume and overhearing all of this, and trails Foggy as he and Karen head out on a date. Meanwhile, Melvin suits up for the first time as the gladiator to rendezvous with Dare Foggy, but with no intention of faking any part of his attack. And that seems like another good stopping point to take a look at these pages. Um, let's start back at where we started at Matt at home, in his brownstone apartment. It brings up a good relevant bit about his home, uh, because this is essentially Daredevil's headquarters. Now, according to the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, the original edition, not the deluxe or 1989 update, Matt's brownstone apartment is located at 448 East 66th Street in New York. So, I fired up Google Maps, and that is a real address, kind of. Uh, it does give me a good place to, to to kind of put the brownstone, at least on the map. The area where Matt's place would be located is within about half a block of Rockefeller University. Uh, it's about six blocks away from the Queensboro Bridge, to give you kind of a point of reference. This is a little over a mile and a half from the very edge of what is considered to be Hell's Kitchen. Now, playing with Google Maps... I wanted to kind of get a realistic feel for Daredevil, where he lives, how long it would take him to get from point A to point B. So, using Google Maps, using the walking method, it puts uh, going from Matt's apartment to Hell's Kitchen, the very edge of Hell's Kitchen, at about a 33-minute walk, which includes a shortcut through Central Park. Now, that's not accounting for swinging on a billy club line across rooftops, which would put it more as the crow flies. So I would kind of estimate that would cut the transit down from Matt's apartment to Hell's Kitchen down to about 15-20 minutes. That's not a bad commute. The apartment building itself is a three-story townhome with a basement. As seen in the panel, Matt's gym is actually in the basement. And what he does is he slides this bookcase down and goes down the basement. Uh, he has parallel bars, weights, stationary rings, and the boiler and laundry room is also on this level. Looking at the cutaway, the first story is a pretty standard apartment living room, dining room, etc. The second floor has three bedrooms and a terrace, because Matt needs a view, I guess. And the magic happens on the third floor, where we have a private retreat, kind of his own sort of den of meditation or what have you, just to get away from the world. And we also have a skylight entrance and exit. And Matt can open that with a button on the floor and leave discreetly as Daredevil. There's also several lower-level exits. They're all discreet. He has different ways to get out as Daredevil. An interesting note is that Matt also has the largest privately owned Braille library, and also on the third floor is a sculpture collection. Now, his digs, they aren't Wayne Manor. You know, except for a few private areas in the skylight rigging, it's basically a regular apartment. And Daredevil doesn't take a secret passage to a huge lair. His lair is the place where he lives. Now, Matt isn't as obsessive about being a hero as Batman is. I mean, for Batman, it's 24 hours a day, crusades, and it never stops. For Matt, Daredevil is... This isn't quite accurate, but he's more of something that Matt does. Not entirely who he is. Yes, there's some obsessive behavior, but more, there isn't that solid divider between Matt and Daredevil. They're one and the same, 
and Matt is relatively balanced towards both identities. Now, I mean, there's exceptions to that. But generally speaking, Matt's pretty cool with being Daredevil and Matt, even with some of the issues that it causes. And I'm getting off on a tangent here when all I wanted to do was talk about the brownstone. I didn't realize the metaphor there until now that that kind of symbolizes Matt and his approach to superheroing. Anyway, Foggy goes back to the store, gets his costume, and sets up this staged fight. He sets up a staged fight to make himself appear to be a superhero. And the goal of this staged fight is to get Karen to notice him. If I was light on Foggy's life choice a little bit earlier, allow me to rectify that now with some solid logic. Foggy is being a f***ing idiot. I can give him a little bit of a pass for putting on the costume to imply that he is Daredevil. But to outright convince Karen to marry him, based on being Daredevil, even deep in the recesses of her inky black heart and vapid brain, Karen would eventually realize Foggy gets winded hailing a cab. It might take years and four babies, but eventually she's going to catch wind that Foggy groans when rolling out of bed and there's no way he's swinging from a billy club. And let's think about this before you condemn me for bashing on Foggy's methods. He is a college and law school graduate, and I will point this out again next week. I would expect this kind of thing from a junior high dropout who can't get a job washing dishes at Taco Bell, but not somebody with enough fortitude and reasoning skills to operate as a competent lawyer. Because, what if this backfires? Would you want Foggy representing you? Now imagine, you are framed for murder. The one guy who can defend you is strutting around in spandex to get his pretty blonde secretary into bed. Actually, you know, let me flip-flop here. If Foggy was able to get Karen into bed by convincing her that he is Daredevil, he may have the ability to argue any case. Hmm, I see what you did there, Foggy. No, in all seriousness, I mean, it's ridiculous to think about predicating a marriage on a lie. Especially a lie like this one. So now, the question is, does Foggy's ploy work? Let's get back to the story and find out. While out on the date with Karen, with Daredevil tracking the two of them, the gladiator does appear in a dark, fog-filled alley. Foggy himself switches to his Daredevil costume, making sure that he is in full view of Karen. But when the gladiator attacks, he nearly takes Foggy's head off. The real Daredevil catches on to what is happening and swings in to fight with the gladiator as Karen flees the scene to find some police officers. As Daredevil has his hands full with the fight and Foggy is down for the count, Karen has the cops return her to the offices of Nelson and Murdoch. Daredevil wins the fight by pretending to be unconscious underwater, giving him the element of surprise to subdue the gladiator, though the villain does not go down without a solid, solid fight. And with the gladiator down and the police coming to the scene, Matt takes off. The police are somewhat convinced of Foggy's Daredevil outfit. They're a little skeptical, but there is a clobbered villain sitting on the dock, so they do have a bit of a tinge of believability there. And Matt returns to the law office, where the building's owner, Farnham, he's important, tells him that Karen is suffering from nervous fatigue and napping on the couch. And the final panel shows Matt brooding over exactly how he is going to handle this major problem in his life, a problem named Foggy. And th so ends the issue. So let's get the problems out of the way, and then we can concentrate on the good aspects and the overall issue. First of all, beyond all of the logic leaps that Foggy has been making, taking Karen down a dark New York back alley near the docks is just plain stupid, and it justifies Matt's concern tenfold. Removing the gladiator from the equation 
Those alleyways are filled with potential muggers and rapists or worse, gangs. I know what I'm talking about. I saw the movie The Warriors. And part of me shudders to think that Karen could have become a bait for the Gramercy Rifts or the Baseball Furies. And then Foggy and Karen have to fight their way all the way back to Coney Island through the night with the Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego woman playing on the radio. That would have been bad. Even Matt agrees with me as he states that even he wouldn't think that the waterfront is a safe place for a date. And he's Daredevil! But Foggy and Karen have Daredevil looking over them and I can't stop looking at Daredevil. The key to making a solid daredevil is simple, yet complex. It's a paradox. In his red costume, daredevil has no defining elements. It's red from head to toe, with red belt, gloves, and boots. The design does not lend itself to definition on the figure, even with well-drawn muscle line work. The secret to making him look great is shadows. The use of shadows, and even more so, the restraint of using shadows because too many shadow lines and Daredevil appears as nothing more than a few details. And that works in limited scope, more for pinups. Uh, I mean, for example, an image with Daredevil, with his eyes and horns and maybe the symbol in a black void, that looks cool. But that doesn't work with action scenes very well. Too little shadow and Daredevil's features get washed out. He stands out too much from his surroundings, and he looks unnatural. Ramita nails the balance between the two and he masterfully gives us a toned Daredevil who looks like part of the scene he is in, but is also defined. We see the lean, chiseled muscles he builds in his home gym. The costume remains red. It remains vivid, but without making Daredevil look like a Roger Rabbit type of character, and that comes in very handy when he's fighting in the murky darkness of the waterfront. And that use of shadow on the costume actually works in Foggy's favor because it does manage to bring out some of his body definition as well, though not enough to pass as the rigid, rock-hard mat. Okay, enough about body definition and chiseled muscles. I'm beginning to sound like a shake weight commercial, and that's just weird. Let's talk about the fight between Daredevil and the Gladiator. Unlike the fight Daredevil had last week with Spider-Man, the Gladiator has none of the grace and acrobatics. What he does have is strength and he is fueled by that fanatic anger that Foggy mentioned, which is driving him into a frenzy. That anger makes him formidable, but it also becomes his weakness when Daredevil uses strategery to catch him by surprise and delivers some solid blows. And yes, I know strategery is not a word. I'm making a joke there. Let me please clarify that. Those blows that Daredevil makes show more than the slightly campy style of Everett. Ramita's fight actually feels like a knock-down, drag-out slugfest. When the gladiator swings his blade towards Daredevil's chest, narrowly missing the man without fear, you almost feel the air whoosh by. To Stan's credit, Daredevil's narration of the fight does add to it, and merges with the images seamlessly. Not only do we have a visual understanding that this is a hardcore fight, we also know that Daredevil is carefully choosing his moves, and it is plausible. Also, the fight happening while Foggy is knocked out and Karen is away allows the subplot of Foggy's fake superhero dreams to continue. And you didn't think that I would miss a chance to bash on Karen Page, did you? She runs off to call the cops, leaving Foggy all alone against a madman. If she was buying into the idea that he is Daredevil, would she have stayed put? I mean, it's still a jerk move on Karen's part. There's a bit of logic to seeking out the police. Thankfully, they were nearby, but the jerk move isn't doing that. There's some logic to that. Let's get some help. Regardless if it's Daredevil, he's overpowered. The jerk move was having the police take her, you know, the one that hadn't been assaulted, 
all the way back to the law offices before the police had a chance to actually help Foggy. What this means is, if I may be allowed to translate the mind of a Miss All-American Vapid Whore of the Year Karen, is that she essentially said, yes, I know my friend is being beaten by a madman in an alley, but I want to cover my own ass and I need a ride home. I've made the joke, there is some logic to this. It's actually the cops who offered to take her away from the scene, but she still ran away from Foggy and allowed them to take her rather than, you know, sticking around to see if her friend and employer is still alive. She is safe with the police, after all. And I mentioned there's an appearance here by Farnham, the owner of the building that Matt and Foggy rent their law offices in. Just make a note of that, and he's going to be important. We'll be taking a look at that next week. So, coming to the end here. Overall, on Daredevil number 18, solid villain in the Gladiator. Good fight. Well paced. And the battle didn't crescendo too early, nor did it take up the whole issue. We had a solid build-up and a good length battle. I really like the gladiator despite not liking his costume. He's creepy and he's dangerous because he is mentally unbalanced. And rest assured we will see how unbalanced and just what a rich character the gladiator actually is down the road. Subplots are laid out for us including Foggy becoming enamored with Karen and trying to make her think that he is Daredevil. Stan seems to be on point and I think it is the new blood of Romita's art really. I think that's fueling him. The man Stan courted to come to Marvel is igniting that. I think it's invigorating this book as well as Stan's imagination. Romita's art. Suffice it to say, the visuals are dynamic and full of energy that only Ditko had achieved at this point. Which makes sense. You know, Romita would take over ASM in just a few issues time. Daredevil would be a great tryout for the visual similarities that I even mentioned last week's episode. Ramita is a true living legend, with a rich legacy and a living legacy as well in his son John Ramita Jr., which brings up a small gripe, I'm just going to put it out there. When looking up any information online for John Ramita, the elder Ramita is consistently referred to as John Ramita Sr., John Jr. wasn't always around. Show some respect to his father's career. It was more than being the sire of another artist. Having said that, John Romita Jr. would make something of a name for himself on Daredevil as well as Spider-Man. And Romita Sr., it's appropriate in this context, would also add to Daredevil's legacy by designing and co-creating the Kingpin for Amazing Spider-Man number 50. And the villain would be co-opted and outright stolen by Daredevil to become considered his arch nemesis. And it's... It's just always such a pleasure to look at Ramita's art and to see him just set the page on fire. I also credit Ramita for drawing my version of Spider-Man, as I mentioned at the top of the show, and that's, once again, no slight, no disrespect for, towards Ditko, but Ramita's Spidey was the formative vision of the wall crawler for me. Now, if you want to peek at Ramita's Daredevil, you can find this on Marvel's Digital Unlimited subscription service, as well as a couple of reprint options. We have Marvel Masterworks Volume 29, Daredevil Volume 2 Hardcover, and... The Essential Daredevil Volume 1 Trade Paperback. Both of these do reprint Ramita's entire short run on Daredevil, and the run is in its entirety on Marvel Unlimited. I recommend all versions highly. And that brings us to the end of another episode. I do have a couple of bits of business really quickly, if you'll suffer me. I want your emails. What do you think of the comics I'm covering? Are there issues you'd like to see covered? Are there any complaints, compliments, or criticisms? Let me know. I'm a big boy. I'd like your, your feedback. The email address, which is also on the in tag, is dave at daredevilpodcast.com. Pretty much the name of the show. So if you know the name of the show, you, you have the email address. Well, next time, though, we cover a Gene Colan issue of Daredevil and my very first 
Daredevil reading experience with Daredevil number 26. So all you Stiltman fans had better be ready, and if you have never heard of Mike Murdock, prepare yourself for a treat. And that is in just seven short days. Until then, remember, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a Nat World production. The show's archives can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. To subscribe to the show, you can visit iTunes where you can leave a review, which helps the show get noticed. Or there's a handy RSS link at the website to use the podcatcher of your choice. The show is released every Sunday on all formats and emails are welcome. The address is dave at daredevilpodcast.com. While you're at it, why not friend the show on Facebook? It's easily found by searching for Dave's Daredevil Podcast or just Daredevil Podcast if you're into the whole brevity thing. The important note I'd like to make is I don't make any money off of Daredevil or any Marvel property because they are copyrighted characters that are fully owned by Marvel Comics and their parent company, Disney. I just do this to entertain, so any and all music or sound clips are for entertainment purposes only and the copyright still belongs to the copyright holder. No infringement is intended, so please, don't sue me. It's all in good fun, and it's all for the love of comics and the love of Daredevil. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Here